This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. On the 18th of November 2016, the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law hosted its third annual conference entitled From Refugee Emergency to Protracted Exile, The Role of Time in International Protection. This is a recording of the second presentation in the panel session, Creeping Crisis, From Emergency to Development, chaired by Dr. Eileen Pitaway, founding director of the Centre for Refugee Research at UNSW. This presentation by Professor Stephen Castles from the Faculty of Arts and Social Science at the University of Sydney is entitled, The Notion of Crisis. Do we need to rethink the links between mobility, development and inequality? Thank you. Well, uh, Francis preempted a lot of the themes I'm going to be talking about, but I will probably be giving you a somewhat different perspective because I come at it from a, from a, a sociological angle and not a, a law angle. Um, so, to start with, this just to remind you of what was happening in Europe last year. This, this is... Uh, asylum seekers camping in Istanbul railway station. Um, the European refugee crisis, um, from, I suppose from 2014 and 16, um, has led to policymakers claiming that people in, in Europe, arriving in Europe have both protection and economic motivations. That is why many of the European politicians are speaking of a migration crisis rather than a, ref a refugee crisis. And as you know, the European response has been piecemeal, uncoordinated, and chaotic, and in, in some cases has led to a lot of conflict between national governments, between, for instance, between Germany and Hungary, and has led to a range of reactions in the population, ranging from great generosity to uh, open hostility. I want to ask the question, um, whether the rapid growth of refugees and uh, refugee flows and migration to Europe in 2016 were merely a passing phenomenon or a new normal, not just for Europe, but for the world as a whole. And of course, to, to say it's a new normal would imply that something really important has changed or is changing in the way uh, the global political system and the global economic systems work. Um, so the question is, is this, this new, is it a new normal and is it likely to persist? And I find very useful to um, deal with this question, the notion of emergency migration, the idea that migration of a certain type is, is driven by desperation and that desperation may be the result of civil war and individual persecution but it may also be uh, the result of impoverishment, insecurity, and the loss of livelihoods. And so I want to ask the question, is, is this what has been happening, or is it business as usual? The first thing to realize is that what happened in Europe is not just a European phenomenon, and you all will remember the Rohingya refugee emergency um, of 2014-15, um, where 
the states of countries where Rohingya refugees were trying to land, Malaysia, um, Indonesia, and so on, uh, were claiming that there, it was in fact a mixed flow that many of the uh, refugees were in fact, or many of the people claiming asylum status, were in fact economic migrants from Bangladesh. Um, another example, just to show the global nature, the Central American miners coming and in this particularly dangerous way by riding on the roof of a, a train through Mexico, Central American miners, unaccompanied miners, coming to the USA and claiming refugee status. Um, more than 100,000 children from Central America came to the USA this way in that period. So the first question we need to ask ourselves is, has migration at a global level increased? And this, is, um, this chart shows the latest UN population division figures that indicate there was some 244, the, the red bars are the total refugees, uh, total migrants in the world. The brown ones are uh, migrants in um, developing regions and the yellow are migrants in developed countries. Um, according to the UN classification. So the number has clearly risen over the last uh, 20, well, 26 years these figures cover. Uh, there clearly has been a major increase. So there is a, um, a view that there is a major growth in migration. I think that's actually deceptive because world population has increased at about the same rate. So... Three point, only 3.3% of the world's population are international migrants, and that figure's been actually quite constant over a fairly long period. Um, so 97, nearly 97% of the world's people are not international migrants. Uh, Australia is very different, of course. Um, so why is there this perception that there's been a huge growth? And why do people see it as an emergency? Um, I think the main reason for the perception is the concentration of migrants in certain regions, um, and particularly in developed regions, as the chart uh, the, on the previous um, slide showed. Um, 10 to 15% of the population of Europe, European countries, North America, Oceania, uh, 10 to 30% are international migrants, whereas only 1 to 5% of the population of less developed countries are migrants. So concentration is the first factor. The second is what I call the growth of emergency migration. And um, that's partly due to violence, to civil war, to persecution, but it's, it, it's also due to environmental degradation and uh, to economic vulnerability, which I'll come to in more detail in a minute. The thing that characterizes what I call emergency migration is that people are willing to take huge risks. The factors that make them leave their countries of origin are so powerful that they are willing to risk their lives, for instance, by crossing in dangerous uh, uh, boats from Libya to Italy, as we've seen in, in recent times. 
And the third issue, of course, is the politicization of migration. Migration was not really so much a, a political football if you go back 10 or, or 20 years. Um, it was seen as something fairly routine. Now it's become a number one political issue. Um, so perhaps we're not really dealing with a migration crisis at all, but a political crisis, a crisis of the way nation states respond to migration, but also the way the international community responds. So let me talk about some of the the causes of migration, and I really can't cover them all and certainly not in great detail. Um, obviously, one of the main factors causing migration under dangerous circumstances is the des desperation that comes from experience of violence, of civil war, and of persecution. And as has been said several times at this conference, um, the, the level of displacement, forced migration is higher today than it has been at any time since the Second World War. I won't go through the figures because you're all familiar with them. Syria, of the total population of about 23 million, about half have been displaced. Um, about 6 million within Syria and nearly 5 million outside Syria. So that's one of the, the main causes, as is our main theme at this conference, of course. But there's another main cause, and that's what I would... You, I mean, I've put inequality, but one could also speak of impoverishment and lack of livelihoods. There are huge income differentials between rich and poor countries. Um, the inequality within countries has also increased. We, we can use the um, very detailed analyses of um, Thomas Piketty, who shows us this. Um, but globalization is not only about changing the way the world economy works. It also leads to destruction of livelihoods. Um, farmers who were able to manage, certainly not at a very high living standard, but certainly were able to survive on their own small parcels of land, are being displaced because agriculture is being transformed. The Green Revolution 20 years ago was a first step. It's continued. The concentration of land in the hands of larger landowners is inevitable because only they have the resources for the new inputs, the seed stock, the fertilizers, the tractors, and so on. Um, what happens to farmers who are displaced? They move into these rapidly growing Asian cities where they find no formal sector work, or very little. Um, they work in the informal sector, if at all. There is chronic um, underemployment, unemployment, and a situation of precarity for millions of people. And poverty means exclusion from political power. It means that people are highly vulnerable to violence and corruption, um, and they may become so desperate, and they do become so desperate in many cases, that they will risk migration under the worst possible conditions. Now, obviously, most economic migration does not fit into this situation. There's a lot of high-level economic migration um, to, uh, to match the skill needs of 
various countries. That type of migration often takes place under very good conditions, and I'm, I'm not going into that there, but there is a level of desperation or emergency migration. There are people who have to travel without documents, who have no permits to enter the countries they want to get into. Um, so what, what brings together people who, how do people know that they will do better in another part of the world? And that this is another really new factor that is irreversible. Um, there are the increasing use of new media, new forms of communication has formed a bridge between poverty in developing areas or less developed areas and the belief in opportunities in more developed countries. One part of it is something that isn't new, that has existed for a long time, the idea of past migration leading to more migration. In other words, some migrants are pioneers, they move to another country and they write home in the old days by sea uh, uh, mail and then air mail and then um, now use, using electronic media and they say, do come, there are opportunities. Often they're not, they're not speaking the truth about the opportunities because they don't want to admit how difficult things have been for them. But they invite their compatriots, their paisani, to, to come. Um, but now there is a new factor, and that is the new electronic technologies, the use of mobile phones, the use of the internet. And I was, I was very struck um, when we had all the uh, television images of Syrian refugees um, coming to Europe, of the way they were using mobile phones to tell each other about... Um, you know, new routes or the fact that a route they were on was, was closed and they should t try something else. It's really a new phenomenon. Um, but of course, they often are giving misleading messages. Um, people are, are, are exaggerating the benefits of moving. They're, they're saying things are good here, do come, but in fact, they are, they are struggling. Um, and of course... That applies also to other media, to the uh, dissemination of Western television, Hollywood movies and so on, in, um, uh, in less developed countries that people get a completely false impression of the living standard and lifestyle uh, in other countries. So I would say well, I, uh, <coughs> we, we have to deal with that type of emergency economic migration also as a humanitarian issue. And how we do that, that is the big question. Um, but I think the fundamental thing to understand about it is that this is really a structural issue in the contemporary economic system, that it is leading to more and more inequality and more and more awareness of inequality. And that won't be solved by preventive diplomacy, and it won't be solved by the actions of the IMF or, or UNDP or the World Bank, because it, what they can contribute is a drop in the ocean compared with the huge profits that are being made from a transnational mode of production um, where 
jobs are now going wherever the wages are lower. So there is a structural issue that we need to think about, and that's what makes it so difficult. I did want to say a few words about the time dimension, if I've still got time to do it. Okay. Um, if you look at the, the UN figures on protracted refugee situations, um, nearly 7 million people have been displaced for five years or more, many of them for much longer. The average time in protracted refugee situations, according to UNHCR, is 26 years. Um, and mainly, as we know, refugees are hosted in low- to middle-income countries that cannot offer opportunities for the millions of people in the big camps like Dadaab and Kakuma. At the same time, there are about 100,000 resettlement places in the whole world every year. Now, if you do a simple, some would say simplistic arithmetic on that, you would say the queue, if there is one, the queue that people are accused of jumping, is actually 70 years long. And a queue of 70 years is not a queue. It's not a realistic perspective at all. And that's why so many people decide that they're going to move on even if uh, they're not being resettled. Um, the interesting thing is that when a refugee who has secured uh, asylum in an in a, um, initial country of refuge, like in these big camps, when that person decides to move on and wants to cross over to Europe, say take a boat from Libya to Italy, he or she becomes an irregular migrant. They're not refugees anymore because they already had refugee status and they've moved on, so they lose that status effectively. Um, um, migration is rather similar. I, when, when I was doing research on labour migration to Europe, I interviewed a lot of migrants, about, uh, new migrants, about their perspective. And they were going to stay for three or four years and go back and, um, and set up a business or buy a farm in their country of origin. And that, if you interviewed the same people later, their, their perspective had changed because they found they got used to the life in the new country. They wanted to have their, their families with them. The children went to school and the parents found they couldn't go back. And many of them never came back, went back. And they became settlers in countries like Germany which had never, never accepted the idea that migrants should settle. Um, on the other hand, economic migrants can become refugees. There are less cases of that than the other way around. But, um, for instance, the Sri Lankans who tried to come to, Britain, uh, to Australia um, over the last year or so, many of them were, were um, categorised by the Department of Immigration and Border Protection as economic migrants. They weren't recognised as refugees, and they were sent back. When they were sent back, they got arrested and in some cases even tortured. So this is a, a classic case of um, a failed migration turning into a refugee situation. There is no rigid distinction, in my view. So let me come to some conclusions. Um, I think we are dealing with a new phenomenon. The changes in the global economic 
architecture um, and in the way communications work means that there's going to be more emergency migration and it will be in mixed flows. Um, of course, refugees and migrants are quite distinct in international law, um, but really very hard to, to distinguish in mixed flows. And I remember a paper written, or it must have been 15 years ago, by Jeff Crisp of the UNHCR pointing out that fact. So it's not exactly a new, uh, new knowledge. Um, they may have quite complex motivations. I mean, they don't perceive themselves as migrants, they, uh, as refugees. They see themselves as people who want to improve their, life, their lives and the lives of their children. And there are different ways of doing it, and it, official categories are not terribly relevant to it. And then again, people's aims and plans may change over time. So the question is, how should the international community respond? Now, that is a huge question, which I can't possibly adequately answer. But um, I think it's very important that we don't tinker with the 1951 Refugee Convention, and that's for political and pragmatic reasons, because last time that was under discussion in the early 2000s, the aim of most... Um, developed countries was actually to reduce the level of protection. They didn't want to keep the Refugee Convention in the strong form it is today. So we, we shouldn't tinker with that, but we do need a charter of human rights to protect all migrants, whatever their legal status, and we need a new global body that will be able to set, monitor, and enforce standards. And I can't see that happening. I, I mean, I think the UN meeting in September was at least a first small step, but it falls far short of achieving what is really necessary. So I'll stop there. Thank you.